Welcome to The Answer Key, learning and leadership in the K-12 world. Helping students uncover content is a valuable component of learning how to read, write, think, and discuss a range of topics, from science to language arts and so much more. It's also about equity, giving students the time to practice literacy skills within a real-world context. Join The Answer Key as we explore the meaning of disciplinary literacy with educators Chris Dovani and Paige Whitlock. You're listening to The Answer Key, learning and leadership in the K-12 world. Welcome, my name is Sandra Brennan. The teacher who wrote, I read it, but I don't get it, as well as, do I really have to teach reading, grew up as one of the biggest school cons ever. She says she couldn't read, but admittedly, Chris Tovani could decode and articulate and retell, but fluent reading, that didn't come until much later. Now, Chris Tovani, is that true? Uh, is that an internet mashup of quotes and fake news? What's what's the story behind that? Yeah, I was really good at uh, reading out loud. I could decode, I could read with expression, but if it was complex or if it was something that I didn't really like, I would read the words and I just I would think about something else. My eyes would move down the page and uh, I'd get to the end and I'd have no idea what I read. I was really, really good at listening to the teacher and kind of spitting back what the teacher said. I knew how to uh, use Cliff Notes, the old time version of Spark Notes. Um, I had lots and lots of, um, well, I would like to think of them as strategies, but it was really great ways to cheat to get around actually constructing meaning. So you went on to pursue a career in education <laughs> and, and became a reading teacher and K-12. So, so what, is, what does disciplinary literacy mean? You've come to one of the largest school districts in the country. You have a huge following. Uh, your work is research-based. It's not something you're, you're making up. What prompted this, this dedication? You know, it was a, it was a, it's been a long journey, actually. Um, I started off as an elementary school teacher, and I realized 30 minutes into my first day of school that I, I, I didn't know how to teach kids how to read. I signed up for a master's program with the University of Colorado, uh, was promptly fired at the end of my first year. <laughs> Luckily, I was hired uh, a couple months later. And uh, through my master's work and through some uh, nonprofits in the state, I came across some research of um, comprehension, how to teach, how to teach comprehension, um, what good readers do. And so there was a group of us in, in Denver from the Public Education and Business Coalition, and we really experimented with young kids on um, how to think about text, what to do when uh, you didn't get it. Uh, after about 10 years of teaching elementary school, I was really curious about older readers. And um, so much of the research at the time was saying it was too late to help older kids become better readers. And so I, I wanted to try it out. Um, the only job that was available to me was a high school position. I was hired as a part-time English teacher and then part-time reading specialist. And uh, my principal really wanted to get her money out of me, so she also put me in charge of the literacy staff development in the, in the building. 
and it was sort of baptism through fire that I had to start figuring out not only how to help um, myself read fiction, but I also had to figure out how, do you, how you read math and how you read science and social studies and oil paintings and uh, blueprints, that whole idea of text that's not traditional text. Um, and I was really lucky to be with a faculty that would help me kind of think through. I, I, I came to them and said, I, I can't really teach your content, but if, if you show me what you do as an expert reader of your content, I can probably help your kids. And I think that's, for me, where that whole disciplinary literacy kind of, kind of came to be, through tri trial, and, trial and error and um, just that idea of, of what are the different things that we do when the text, when the text changes. Joining the conversation is Paige Whitlock, high school language arts specialist with Fairfax County Public Schools. Paige, what's your takeaway, and how did your view of disciplinary literacy evolve? Last year, there was a commitment made by the school division to really investigate uh, what disciplinary literacy looks like and could look like in our high schools. And so we asked each high school uh, and, and middle school 63 of them to put together a secondary literacy team uh, comprised of seven people. Two people who were administrative type people and five teachers, their choice. Uh, and so they put together teams and, and while they were thinking about their teams, we were thinking about in instructional services what kind of resources we could build to support them on this journey of creating a culture of literacy. So that was last year's work. So last year was all about building uh, capacity, helping our teachers to understand that regardless of what of the, your discipline, you own the teaching of your discipline, and you own teaching those strategies of how to help students make it through the reading, the text, and the writing of those classes. This year, the teams have come back. So this is the second year for the Secondary Literacy Symposium. That's kind of a tongue twister. And we uh, have, we brought back our 63 teams. We had some turnover. But this year is different. It's about implementation. We have built um, the capacity of those teams. So now I want to see it move not just in their classrooms, but beyond their classrooms. And we're looking at how do you implement with fidelity disciplinary literacy across a school division that is so huge. Um, so we've really tasked our, our teams and our schools and put the, the power and the onus in their hands um, to move this through their building. So when Chris comes, she's our spark. She is the person who um, gets them motivated to move to the next level. And this is the next level as we look to see how this can very much uh, organically move through the different buildings. What does it look like when you're reading in science and language arts and math and art, which you, which you mentioned earlier? Back in the day, I, there, there was a course, and they probably still call it this, called Contentary Reading. That's reading in the Content Area. Yeah, that's what I took. Yeah, <laughs> that uh, secondary teachers have to take. It's a semester long, and it's sort of this kind of, you know, quick, quick study on how to teach reading. Um, I think the focus now because of the amount of text that um, highly functioning adults are expected to be able to negotiate to be successful in the world, um, we're, we're really looking at disciplines and what sort of things 
engineers have to read, uh, historians have to read, uh, community organizers, uh, social workers, this idea of um, thinking about how can we help kids actually attack authentic tech. So the social studies teacher is in a sense expected to be a reading teacher in that he's probably the best reader of his disciplinary text in the classroom. He reads his um, required text better than anyone else in there. So if, if he can show kids how to make sense of a primary document or how to look at a map and um, construct meaning, that's going to really empower students um, to, to learn, uh, to be able to be better readers of that text structure to learn that content, content better. And so that idea of I think every teacher is taking a slice of the pie and thinking about what their discipline has to be good readers of and then sharing that with kids, uh, we're going to grow really strong readers across the board, which will then make them more powerful. And I think it's, it's building the strong readers, but it's also just maybe you can inspire a student to love your discipline if you teach them how to read it and how to write it. It's really scary to be in a classroom and not understand how to read a text or how to respond to some of the questions. So part of it is, okay, I'm going to learn how to read this. But in doing so, if every teacher in every discipline helps students to decode that and understand and make meaning of that text, surely there's got to be one type of reading that hits home with that student that he or she can grow to love. So what would teachers be doing differently? What are the sort of the strategies that you are highlighting or if so, a teacher doesn't know where to start, what would you tell them? Trying to get teachers to really think, at the, uh, think about how they're planning. So I think gone are the days where um, we're asking kids to memorize facts and information to then spit it out on a test because just about every single one of our students has these little computers in their hands that they can Google something and get that information. We really want to grow critical thinkers and problem solvers. So I think the biggest shift is um, not covering our content, but helping kids to uncover it and giving them compelling reasons to read, write, problem solve, discuss, but then also um, a variety of, of sources that they can choose um, to, to build their background knowledge. Um, I think another piece that we'll dig in pretty tough tomorrow with is that idea of, of, of what will kids create, what will kids make to demonstrate their understanding of, of the concepts in that class that actually exists in the world outside of school. So I think that big piece is, is getting away from the fakeness that school was when I, when I was in school to the authenticity of um, have, helping them practice for that world outside of school with authentic texts, authentic purposes, um, and authentic opportunities to really collaborate and practice critical thinking. And I think there are lots of of strategies, specific uh, disciplinary strategies that you can you can name off, uh, rattle off that will help a student make meaning of a text, but um, there has to be a purpose for reading that text, and that was what Chris was getting at. Is yeah, they can they can read it and they can make meaning of it, but 
really when you give them a purpose, you are reading this because you're trying to find the answer to this. And you're going to make this bigger thing at the end of, of our unit of study. It gives them that purpose and that reason to read it and make meaning of it. Can you elaborate on the workshop model and how, if you did teach at elementary school, how it sort of influences your approach in high school? So it's really interesting. So at the elementary level, we call it the workshop model. And then um, at, at, at the secondary level, we, we start calling it the engagement model. Um, and I'm not quite sure why that is, but it's, it's basically this, the same for me. It's really a planning structure to plan what kids are going to do for the majority of the class time. That idea of, can I plan for kids to read and write and problem solve and think for two-thirds of that time? Um, and I get the other third to do some whole class modeling. I'm still teaching the whole period, but I'm not teaching the whole class the same thing at the same time. I'm working with small groups or I'm working with individuals. Um, workshop model is also, I think, an assessment structure. So if I am, um, if I'm standing in front of the room lecturing, I am at a huge disadvantage because I can't see what kids are thinking. Um, if I don't give them, if I don't give them an opportunity to write or talk or make something, then I, I don't really know if they're cognitively engaged. And so I really want to plan using that student engagement model because if there is two-thirds of the class where they are working, I can confer with them. I can, I can look over their shoulders and see what they're writing. I can listen into their conversations and I can notice patterns. Uh, and those patterns really help me to know when I need to stop the whole class and quickly reteach something or they help me to figure out, okay, tomorrow I need to do this mini lesson because nobody's understanding it. Um, it also gives me an opportunity to give kids real-time feedback. So it's really giving me an advantage to plan in a way where kids are doing the bulk of the reading and writing and discussing because then I can do my job and I don't have to do as much at home at, at night when I'm absolutely exhausted. So um, I, I, I think... I don't think I don't think of workshop model or the engagement model as a program. It's, it's it's really just a planning structure and an assessment structure to see what kids know and need. And it's something that elementary school teachers have been doing for quite a while. Um, and part of the reason I think they do it is because of students and and how short their attention span is. They have to think about how they're providing students information and chunking that information and getting feedback from the students in order to move forward. So to think that that model wouldn't work in a secondary setting um, is ridiculous because they've already been taught it in elementary school. So they're unlearning it in, in is that a word, in uh, middle and high school? It, it worked for them in elementary school. So in middle school, in, in upper elementary, sometimes they'll say, oh, we're preparing them for middle school. In middle school, they'll say, we're preparing them for high school. Preparing them from what? To sit and get? No, we want them to be doing work during that time. So they have the skills. They are capable of thinking and doing the work on their own. I've walked into kindergarten and first grade classrooms where students are teachers teaching a small group and students are having a conversation. And when you lean in and listen, it's not about what they were going to do tonight. It is about the book they're reading. It's amazing. And so to think that our middle and high school students couldn't do that, that's ridiculous. They can and they will. And recognizing that, you know what, 
sometimes kids are going to get off task. So you finish working with one group and you go over and you redirect this other group. You're monitoring what's going on in your classroom. It's totally possible. And then teachers, when teachers really employ that strategy on a regular basis, they go home and they realize they're not dog tired because they're, they're not the ones who were talking all day. It was the students talking all day and doing the work. Yeah, they're probably still tired. They're still tired, yeah. <laughs> after after uh, seven or six classes of yeah. ninth graders, I was usually pretty tired. Yeah. So we had a question from Ellen in Arlington County. Ellen has experience in elementary um, schools, and she wanted to know how do you get kids to read more, whether it's an elementary school or high school. Um, well, I think one thing is, is choice, giving kids choice. Choice drives engagement. So that idea of um, uh, finding engaging, compelling text, which I think takes time, but I think it's worth it. Um, I, I think also this idea of reading to do something. I, I know there are kids out there who will just read to read, but there are also a lot of kids out there that, that, that won't just do that. So that idea of reading to figure something out or to know how to do something. And I think that's sometimes where that nonfiction comes in. Um, and I also think sort of sharing your reading with your kids, things that you're figuring out and, and, and you know, and depending on your child and how old your child is and the appropriateness of that. But, you know, if you're looking at the sports page, what you're looking at and what you're reading and what you're figuring out and, and asking them as, as they read something, what are they thinking about? What are they wondering about? What are they learning that's new? So I think just having as authentic as conversations as possible around all kinds of texts, not necessarily just novels, but all kinds of texts is really important. I think giving kids a choice um, uh, is, is, is equally important of finding and, and kind of throwing some compelling reads in front of them and not just saying read anything you want but really kind of giving some thoughtful um, selections for them to that you think that they might like so a lot of times with my students I would you know I would work really hard to find out what they did for fun and you know coming from Colorado a lot of my boys were Bronco fans and so I, I would just do everything I could to cut out an article and say you know here's something I I, uh, I read about Peyton Manning, so here, I thought you might like it. I thought you might be interested in it. And there's something really kind of in, um, charming. I mean, I really love it when somebody hands me something and says, you know, I read this and I, I was thinking about you. I thought you'd really like it. And I think kids respond to that as well. So in the last few years, professional learning communities have become sort of uh, standard collaborative teams. So earlier you mentioned about you have seven, maybe five to seven teachers coming from a school. How do these teams of professionals in a school take ownership and implement? And do you think that impacts how the success of, of this disciplinary literacy push? Well, there are just two of us really working with a team of specialists to um, to make literacy happen and to push this out in Fairfax County. And so the way that it will really take hold is when teams take that ownership. When they take it back to their building and there is job embedded professional learning in their building that takes place not just on uh, staff development days, but it takes place in their CTs. They're talking about strategies that work and they're trying those strategies and then coming back together in their teams and saying, okay, how did it work? How did using 
text coding work in a math class or in a science class, having those discussions and tweaking. Um, but really, the way literacy will take hold with Fidelity in Fairfax County is when these teams, which they have started to do, which, and it's so exciting, they take ownership of, of the learning in their school and, and differentiate for their colleagues and really get excited about the changes that have happened in their own classrooms. And we have teams that will open their doors and invite their colleagues in to see what learning looks like when you change um, the amount of work time that students have in a class period. The answer key will be back in a moment with Paige Whitlock and author Chris Tovani. Stay with us. One of your books is titled, So What Do They Really Know? Assessment That Informs Teaching and Learning. So my question to you is, what are those look-fors? What, what makes a fair and accurate assessment of student work? Oh, it, when I wrote So What Do They Really Know, I was, it was really out of outrage <laughs> from a district in service where we were handed numbers from students the previous year and then as the English department, we were asked to go back and look at those numbers and figure out how we were going to help um, this year's students based on last year's scores. And I just, I just couldn't see the logic in that. And 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 also struggling to really understand what those numbers were really showing that kids understood. I think measuring and assessing understanding is really tough. I think measuring facts is is very easy. Um, and so I don't know if teachers know all their kids really well really well I think it's really ch a challenge because there's they have so many contacts they have 150 50 kids and they might see them 90 minutes every other day and so that idea of like how do I get to know um, what my kids understand and what they need is really a challenge and so a lot of the assessments that I write about in the book are around making thinking visible but then also um, making them simple enough that teachers can quickly look at them and notice patterns so they can make some tweaks and twangs in their instruction the following day. So the exit tick that, that, you, met, that you mentioned um, is one I like to use a lot and, and I'll often hand kids a note card or a sticky note and I'll ask them on one side of the, of the sticky note to jot down something that um, they figured out today or something that they got smarter about. On the other side, I want them to jot down something that they're, that they're wondering. And, and then I'd literally just sit by a trash can with a piece of scrap paper and pencil in my hand, and i just quickly go through to see if there's questions that are asked over and over again that I can clear up the next day. Um, or I look for maybe misconceptions of what they think they figured out. Um, so within a very short time, I can quickly figure out something that is going to inform my instruction tomorrow. So yesterday, I, I asked teachers to do a little bit of a reflection on some of their lesson planning. And then I went to the back of the room while Paige was running a session. And I, I spent about an hour just going through that 250 you know, responses, trying to figure out, OK, what worked, what didn't work. And um, you know, within the end of that time, I, I, I've got enough information that I could 
it could probably carry me through the rest of the year. So I think it's that management piece of seeing how kids are thinking, um, but then also giving kids opportunities to make that thinking visible um, that, that really informs our instruction as opposed to just says, okay, you're at the 95th percentile. And we've spent a lot of time in education over the last 15 years talking about those final, those summative assessments where you can't do anything after it's done. Okay, it's, it's a standards of learning test. It's a, you know, fill in the blank, a high stakes test. This is about assessing students and getting that information in the moment so you can adjust instruction. That's what's so powerful and it's a shift. If you're checking in with those kids along the way, you're doing those formative assessments, you have less to worry about when it comes time for that big assessment mm -hmm. because you know where they are. In the few minutes we have left, I wanted to congratulate you, Cristovani, on the 2017 Adolescent Thought Leader Award. Wow. <laughs> I have a thought, I guess. I'm not sure what that so means. So what are your thoughts on the continuing role of teachers? Yeah, I, 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 I think our role as teachers is to um, empower our kids to be better citizens. I know that sounds kind of corny, but that idea of giving them opportunities to, to, to do the work, give them opportunities to um, really be participants in the world. And um, the stakes have changed. I think they're higher now. Um, and it's, it's I, I think the role, for, I think as the role that I see fitting the work that I do is trying to empower teachers and students to be information seekers and problem solvers. And because there is so much information in the world, my paradigm shift is uh, there isn't enough minutes in the day for me to tell you. I have to give you the tools to figure out how to uncover what you need and what you determine is important. And so whether we're working with ESOL students or we're working with highly gifted students or we're working with newly arrived immigrants or we're working just kind of like the average Joe, like my daughter, that idea of how do we help them um, seize power in the world and use it in a good way to make the world a better place. And it's really um, about great teaching. When you teach using literacy strategies, it is you are empowering the students to learn and to access that material, and it really, um, it almost ensures equity in education when you start uh, really improving your instructional practices and looking at how you dig in and, and how students learn how to think, read, write, think, and discuss in that content area. They are able then to go on in the world and take those skills with them. A teacher who fails to do that in his or her content area puts a student at a disadvantage. In the past, when you talked about literacy, someone would think, oh, reading. Maybe they'd come up with reading and writing. But they often wouldn't come up with the think and discuss, those other components. And you can. some people would say it's on a continuum. Some people say they're all related. 
But when you read something, you're thinking about it, you're having that conversation in your head, that, discuss, that discussion, and then you have an opportunity to discuss with students, with other colleagues or student to student, and then write about it. If students can do all of those things, they are literate in that area. And so that's why we combined all those components in the FCPS definition that we came up with. Um, and then we spent about a year pushing that out, and that little flower is all over the place because we wanted people to understand that when we were talking about literacy, we were talking more about more than just reading. We were talking about all of those components. And really, it helped push us toward, OK, if literacy is all of these things, then how are you teaching all of these things in a class period? And what are you doing during that big chunk of time to engage students? Could you comment on the role of rigor? Where, where does rigor and practice fit? Yeah, I think, I, you know, I think rigor's got a bad name. I think we sometimes associate it. We were laughing today about that, you know, when we talk about rigor, we're not talking about rigor mortis. We, we don't want to be boring and rigid. Um, we want to take, we want to take the high road and assume that rigor is something that we want to provide for students in our classroom. I think the tough part for teachers is that rigor is not one fixed bar high up. Rigor is 35 individual bars or as many bars as you have students that can be adjusted based on that student's expertise and motivation. And I think practice is so important because if we can build in practice time, students can endure more rigor. If we give them um, uh, a reason to learn the information, they'll have more motivation to dig in. And if we're really clear about the purpose, then they have an opportunity to determine importance. And so um, it goes back to that planning work that we've done to try to keep kids engaged longer. Um, if, if you ever come to Colorado and you, and you want to learn how to ski, you won't get better at having someone tell you how to ski. You have to get on that mountain, and you have to do it yourself. And that practice piece, those minutes on task, that just kind of digging in and falling down and getting up again and having somebody model for you is, is what, what will make you that better skier. And so if we think about those principles on the mountain and we bring them back into our classroom and think about, okay, how are we building in practice? How are we building in redos? How are we giving feedback before that final assessment that Paige mentioned? We're gonna, we're gonna close that achievement opportunity gap. Um, but we also have to keep in mind that if we are truly a rigorous classroom, we have all different bars in there, which means we're gonna have to have a variety of text because we have a variety of reading levels. We're going to have to give kids a variety of ways to show their understanding because they're coming in at different places. And so that um, role that I think Paige and Michael really work to fill is how do we help teachers manage that? How, you know, what instructional strategies can we show them that will, will make all that differentiation work feasible with 125, 150 kids? And I was, I was going to you know, go on and, and say that if we, for example, uh, we've had a lot of talk about writing and, and gosh, teachers are like, oh, how, I can, how can I teach writing in my math class? And differentiating that that writing can be short snippets and to build fluency so then that when they go to the next class and it's a different type of writing, they still feel like, yeah, I did it in math class, I did it in English class, I can still probably do it in this next class. I used to take home stacks of papers when I was an English teacher and my friends would page 
gosh, why are you assigning so much writing to your kids? And I said, well, if there was an easier way for me to do it other than to ask them um, to write, I would be a multimillionaire because I would have sold that, that program. The reality is if we want them to get better at it, they're going to have to do it. So they're going to have to do the reading. They're going to have to do the writing. They're going to have to talk. That's how they get better at it. Um, to better yourself and your situation. So, Chris, you've written a lot of books. Uh, they're available through Stenhouse Publishers. Um, which book was the hardest to write and why? Uh, oh, boy, I don't know. Um, the, I have three through Stenhouse, and then that, the last one that um, No More Telling is Teaching was through Heinemann. And I, I think that one was really a hard one to write because I, I had to work with somebody else. <laughs> That whole idea of collaborating was was really challenging, um, and I think the first one was hard. I read it, but I don't get it because I just didn't I I didn't know that that process. I didn't know what to expect. Uh, I didn't I didn't quite really think I could write a book first of all, and then I didn't really know um, the amount of revision that that goes into writing um, something like that. So I would say the, the 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 first and the last were the hardest. Yeah, and more to come. I, I hope, I hope, I hope I have something relevant to say. <laughs> so I know that you're on a time crunch. Um, before you leave, um, two questions. Paige, if you'd go first. Uh, what is your best advice to secondary teachers who aren't sure how to incorporate literacy strategies? Just do it. Just try it. Um, if you continue to just think about doing it, there's no way for you to get better at it. This is about improving um, one's craft. When I was, I spent a lot of time in the classroom, and when I was teaching, I wanted to get better at it um, so that my students would learn more, and also to recognize that if you, if it doesn't end up the way you want it to, that is okay. Try it again. You're going to get better the second time or tweak it. Um, but the failure to just try it because it's a risk, our kids take risks every day when they come into our classrooms. We owe it to them to take risks as well. So, and, and to be honest about that. Hey, I'm trying something new today, let's see if it works. It's amazing when you express that to students, how accommodating and how welcoming they are because they recognize that as a teacher, you are a learner in that classroom as well. You know, I think two things that have saved me in a lot of tough situations. The first thing is uh, with this literacy piece, thinking about uh, remembering what it was like on a first read for me. What, what did I need? The first time I read this text structure or this novel, what were some things that kind of wrapped me up a little bit? I think that um, gives me some directions on where to go to help kids. And I think the other piece is having, uh, having empathy. And that, I think that core belief that kids would if they could, and when they're not doing what we want them to do, trying to think about, or even just flat out asking them, what, they, what do you need, um, can, can go a long way in the classroom. Um, I think setting, setting ourselves up as collaborators as opposed to, um, uh, I don't know, the tyrant in the room. <laughs> Sage on the stage. I, I guess people don't think about that anymore with teachers. But, I, but that idea of like, okay, you know, it's, it's, it's you and me against the world, babe, so what do you need? Let's go. Um, I think that, that has really um, helped me with 
some of my most recalcitrant teachers as well as, 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 as kids. Yeah, it's tough stuff for asking teachers to do. It's, it's really complex. Teaching is really complex, so we gotta just keep, keep hammering it. And she makes the hard work so much easier um, because she, she is real with us. I think that's that's really important. Thanks, Paige. You're welcome, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Chris Devani and Paige Whitlock, for making time to tell us about disciplinary literacy. For The Answer Key, I'm Sandra Brennan. Thanks for listening. This interview is a production of Digital Learning Resource Services, Fairfax County Public Schools. Mm-hmm.